back, Josh Lammer, who's been uh, away for the last few weeks. Nice to be back, sir. Thank you. Nice to be back. And uh, Bob Metz is here, as he often is. Nice Hi, Jim. To you too, Bob. Hi, Jeff. Hello. I want to take advantage, guys, of uh, something in the news, maybe to, to get your thoughts and get our listeners' thoughts, too. And re I remind you, folks, because I've been chastised a couple times lately for not, quote, opening the phones during left, right, and center. I, I had a written complaint from a listener about that. Well, in fact, during this segment of the program, they're always, phones are always open. You're always welcome to phone at any time. 643-1290 or star 1290 on the Cantel. If you want to get in on the conversation or take issue with something someone said or perhaps uh, try to enlighten us a little bit, one or all of us, you're always welcome on left, right, and center. It really is as much about you as it is about us. I want to take advantage of... Uh, um, a story this week, maybe to uh, to focus on an issue that we haven't talked a lot about, and that's uh, that's the Supreme Court and the the Charter, and uh, that whole issue of Canada's Constitution. The Chief Justice Antonio Lemaire has announced that uh, he's out of here. And um, just as an aside, Jeff, I don't know if you I saw him, but I saw him on TV, and he made some comment about once he's retired, he intends to. Uh, he didn't say I intend to speak out about things, but he certainly suggested there was an awful lot that he wanted to say that he was, had been constrained and continued to be constrained until he was done, but look out, Scout, when, the, when I'm out of here, when the robes are off. Did you get that sense? Did you see that interview? No, I didn't see it, but that wouldn't surprise me because uh, Justice Lemaire has been a, a very um, outspoken judge, and he, he's somebody who, as much as any judge, has, has been in the media. One of the, the, the things that he's taken very seriously has been a lot of the criticism of the Supreme Court of Canada and of judges generally. Um, you know, we've had cases within the last couple of years. For instance, uh, Ralph Klein out west was very critical of, uh, of judge-made law, as he referred to it, and uh, there was that gay rights case. Uh, where they were ordered to add a, a gay rights section to the Human Rights Code, mm -hmm. and uh, and Lemur has been has taken this all really seriously. In some respects, I'm sort of surprised he's taken it as seriously as he has. But he has always been in the lawyers' newspapers saying we can't defend ourselves as judges. Lawyers should be out there defending judges and defending the system and so on. But judges are not allowed to speak on on um, sort of the issues of the day. They certainly can't speak about the, any of the cases that they deal with, and generally they're not supposed to respond to criticism. So the perception is that they. They are sort of sitting ducks for the for the commentary. On the other hand, they're appointed for life, so they don't really have to worry about getting fired or anything. Like for my end of it, I might have thought that Lemur would do what judges have historically done, which is nothing. You know, if people criticize you, say, well, so what? I can't mm -hmm. speak about it, and that's the end of it. But Lemur has tried to be really in there, um, and I think part of the reason is that again, he has taken very seriously the criticism of the court. I, I think that part of the reason he's leaving, in fact, a big part of the reason he's leaving, I think, is that he's tired of being criticized all the time and not being able to speak out in response, because he's still fairly young for a judge. Did the court have any option? Does it have any option when asked to comment on the Constitution of the Charter? Because it seems to me it's only since the repatriation that we've really had much of an issue with so-called judge-made law and the Supreme Court being thrust into this kind of a See, no, I'm no lawyer, but am I wrong in that? Prior to the, to the repatriation, they were simply the court of highest appeal, weren't they? The court of last appeal? Yeah, well, they were uh, since World War II. Prior to World War II, you could go to uh, England still for the highest appeal in the land, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in England. And you may recall the Persons case back in the 20s where... Um, 
what was the issue? Was that, uh, there was a woman who was going to be appointed a senator or something, I believe. Somebody may correct me on this. And anyway, that they said that uh, she couldn't be appointed because women were not people. Were not people, yes. And the Supreme Court of Canada upheld that and said, that's right, women are not people under our traditional common law. And it went to England, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, who overturned it and said, no, women are people. Um, but no, the, the Supreme Court has been the highest court of the land. And, and most of their job has been interpreting um, statutes, that is a province or the, or the um, federal government would pass a law and they would, they would interpret it and apply it. Uh, but there is, just was an explosive growth in their business with the passage of the Charter of Rights because suddenly they were asked to interpret this thing that, that's bigger than a statute as a constitution and applied to all statutes and seemed to talk about really broad principles that are really hard to interpret. Uh, and there's been certainly a lot of criticism of, of the Supreme Court of Canada of saying that they've taken it much further than the politicians intended that it would be taken. Uh, and Lemur, as much as anybody else, would be responsible for that. He's been on the court for, I think it's about 17 years. He's been a judge since his mid-20s, uh, been a judge most of his life. Uh, but but uh, personally, I've met him and spoke to him. He seemed like a really personable, nice guy. Uh, and, and to say... Although you would think if you're the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada that sticks and stones, you know, <laughs> wouldn't work. I think that that's a big part of why he's stepping down. Bob, let me ask you a question about that, the role of, of, of the uh, Supreme Court in Canada. And because it does seem for public consumption, and all we tend to hear about anymore is, is interpretations of the, of the Charter of the Constitution. And Jeff alludes to the fact that some people think that the court has, has taken rather broader definitions than politicians perhaps have intended. Is that, uh, is that a failure on the part of that document? I mean, could we have written... Oh, absolutely. Could we have written a, a, a charter or a constitution that would have eliminated the question marks? And should we have? Well, exactly. The courts can only be as good as the laws that they're given to interpret are. I mean, and it's funny that we're all agreed that most of these problems, at least on the perceptual level, really came into being when the charter was repatriated to Canada. And well, I, don't call, I like well, it. I like the charter just to get my, my well, water in the water there. Well, my whole thing about the charter is that the charter giveth and the charter taketh away. Uh, uh, you know, in the fundamental freedoms section right out at the outset, uh, that's where I would have put the signature and everything right there at the end of that and forgotten the other 10 mm -hmm. sections or so because mm -hmm. they just basically take away all our fundamental rights. If the government can prove that amelioration is necessary or that there's some inequity somewhere or that some some defined group uh, requires some kind of assistance all of a sudden the fundamental freedoms which are supposed to be fundamental on which all law is based are no longer so so judges have been placed in the precarious position of having to interpret these laws and sometimes they they might find in favor of the of the fundamental freedom section and sometimes they might find in favor of the amelioration section so you get all sorts of conflicting decisions coming out of the supreme court um, as to the greater question of, of where, who's making the laws, I don't think judges actually make law, I think they interpret law. Uh, but I'm not one of these people that thinks it should be either judge-made or parliament. I think it's, it's kind of a balance. It has to, you have to have sort of a balance in between. Well, that uh, was the parliament makes a law. Wasn't it? Yes, yeah. parliament makes a law, and then judges are there to, to, to apply to that law the principles that they have learned over the over hundreds of years basically if you want to go that far back you know in terms of the evolution of law and the principles on which we base justice so that any law that is made should be subject to those principles unfortunately since the charter that's no longer the case
And one thing that uh, struck me, I, I was reading an article a couple of days ago about the fact of the Chief Justice stepping down, and, and they were pointing out, I believe, that there are two vacancies right now, and that uh, the suggestion was this may be a time to have a look at uh, the Supreme Court and its structure and talk about whether there should be significant changes. For instance, in the United States, of course, if you want to become a judge of the Supreme Court down there, uh, you have to go through Senate hearings, and you have to be confirmed. Uh, and there have been judges, Judge Bork, I believe, uh, was turned down. The Senate said, no, we're not going to let you be a judge. Whereas in Canada, the decision is solely that of, uh, well, the Justice Minister, realistically, the Prime Minister, gets to decide who the judges are going to be. And, and it's a very secret process. Nobody really knows how it works. Now, you know, to me, that's less important than the law itself, because process can always be amended and changed and altered, and every new government that comes in can do it different. But if every government was working on the same principles of law and the same same constitutional rights and freedoms, we wouldn't have to worry too much about process. So, so my question to you, Jeff, would be, you said you like the Charter. What part of the Charter do you like? Like, I, I like part of it too, but not the whole thing as it sits. Well, I, I, I think I like the whole thing, actually. Well, let, me, let, me, let me read something here for <laughs> sure. you to, to share, because this is, uh, I just grabbed the book here, because I've got a copy of the Charter, and I grabbed it, because this, the, I knew there was one in here that had always confused me, and this is the one. This is, um, what do they call these? Subsection one, two, what are these numbers anyway? Uh, if it's a section one or whatever, it's a section. section it's just a section? Yeah. Subsection. So it's just a section. section okay. Yeah. All right. Section 26 of the Constitution, the Charter of Rights and Freedom. All right. Here's what it says. And if this isn't confusing, I don't know what is. This, or the guarantee, rather, the guarantee in this Charter of certain rights and freedoms shall not be construed as denying the existence of any other rights or freedoms. Either you guys want to explain to me what the heck that means. What they're trying to say is that, okay, we acknowledged individual rights in the opening part of the document, but hey, uh, we're going to go along with group rights, too, group, group rights too, as we define them and make them up as we go along. But doesn't it work the other way, though? I mean, can't you then say the group rights can't, uh, can't step on my individual rights either? If you had legislation saying that, yeah, you could do that as well, and that's what's happening in a lot of areas. That's why in Quebec, people who put English signs up can uh, be fined or go to jail. Well, the thing about the Charter, of course, is that it's a compromise document, too, that uh, it was, I guess, uh, Pierre Trudeau's dream as he wanted his uh, legacy it, to be that it he was not a, it was not a document of the Constitution. The, it wasn't a document for the people of Canada. It was a document for the governments of Canada. And, and Canada does not have the historic um, roots in that, uh, that people-oriented government. We are very much a government-oriented government, and that... that you know, the people almost come secondary to government concerns in this country, and that's that's official in our Constitution and the way it's structured, that the government can take away your rights if it wants to. And to me, that the only reason we have a government in a free society is to protect our rights. Well, and, and you raise an interesting point, and that is that I remember reading about how uh, a criticism of the Charlottetown Accord and the Meech Lake Accord, both of which fell, was that it was politicians talking to each other and that there wasn't a broad support for it, and, and yet the Absolutely. Constitution uh, was passed in, in I think about the same way, you know. And now, having said that, you have the premiers get together and the prime minister. Uh, those are all the elected leaders. That's how a democracy works. But I suppose one could suggest that maybe a charter should have been brought in through a referendum or something, because it certainly made a huge change in in the rules in Canada. We're going to pause for just a second in left, right, and center. We'll be back more with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer after this. Talking about uh, Supreme Court and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And Bob, I want to read something here because I suspect this is the part that you're concerned about or part of it. Uh, this is number, number section 15, every individual mm -hmm. is equal before and under the law, and blah, blah, blah. And then it says, subsection, 
Uh, one does not preclude any law, program, or activity that has as its object the amelioration of conditions of disadvantaged individuals or groups, including those that are disadvantaged because of race, national, or ethnic origin, color, religion, sex, age, mental, or physical disability. Now, what's wrong with that? That seems to make sense to me. They're saying that... Because what they're saying is that it's literally telling us, and with, with no uncertain terms, that the rights are set out in the fundamental freedoms do not apply if the government has a program it wants to put in place to, to violate those rights so that it can obtain your assets to distribute them to someone else. But it That's the purpose but of it that says, section. It has, says, does it not, I'm, I'm kind of agree with you, I'm playing devil's mm -hmm. advocate here. Um, it says, though, that uh, a program or activity that does that has to have it has to have as its object the amelioration of conditions of disadvantaged individuals etc 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 i mean surely we would mm -hmm. want to be able to do that wouldn't we we want to be able to say well if there, we can identify a serious problem here and and the problem is being impeded well, usually by the guarantee. problem they identify is is egalitarianism they want people to be equal they it's not this is not an absolute problem of solving a starving starvation situation or or offering government aid in an earthquake or some ser or some real emergency these this is not what they're talking about there there was never any problem with governments doing that you know it's important to note that with the with the income of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the individuals of Canada did not gain a single right or freedom that they didn't have before that charter. Mm -hmm. Who gained was the government. How so? They gained official recognition of power over the rights and freedoms of their citizens, which, which were earned over, really, through, you know, from British history coming right over to here through common law, all the precedents we've had since the Magna Carta. Well, the Brits well, still the don't have a constitu written constitution, do they? No, they don't. But, but what the Charter does, though, the Charter says that if there are laws that are passed by our governments that are contrary to the Charter, then they get struck down. They're of no force. Like, you know, I would argue that the Charter restricts government far more than they were before because, again, they pass a law and some judge says, sorry, that's contrary to the Charter, like the um, uh, pornography law in, uh, child pornography law in B.C., for instance. He's, the judge says, hey, it's too vague, um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't pass the Charter, yeah, just so well, it's struck down. I would say we get so contradictory decisions. Yes, it can happen, but, but if it can be argued effectively in a court of law that that law that was stricken down met that criteria... The, the amelioration of disadvantaged groups, mm -hmm. then it wouldn't have been stricken down. So, so all, that, all that that says is that the laws that are likely to go the other way are those that meet that test. You've got about one or two or maybe three basic tests that the government wants, but they can be interpreted any way, and you get two or three different judges yeah. looking at the same evidence and interpreting it two or three different ways, and all being basically right if they pick the right section of the Charter. One of the things that, that struck me, and I was just mentioning it uh, off the air, is that uh, you know at the time the Charter was passed, Jean Chrétien was the Minister of Justice and was heavily involved in drafting the Charter and so on, and, uh, and since 93, of course, he's been the guy who chooses the judges who interpret the Charter, and uh, I don't know if it's a majority yet, but I'm sure that after these appointments it will be of the judges have been appointed by him uh like he's had a huge influence as far as the uh, the evolution of the charter and and one of the big questions always is that you can pass a law but two different people will see it two totally different ways and and it's thought that you got to be really careful who you appoint um if you want to achieve a certain result and and the, the, the concern historically has been that people would appoint judges because they follow their own ideological viewpoint. In the United States, we saw under the uh, Republican governments that they tended to appoint very conservative judges mm -hmm. to the Supreme Court who struck down some of the earlier liberal judges. Just as in Canada, you would expect uh, a tax-and-spend liberal administration to have tax-and-spend judges Appointees. in place. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, that's right. And, and uh, that's one of the things that strikes me is that over the last couple of years, I've heard on different shows, people complain about those darn judges and the way they're they're screwing up our country because they interpret these laws in these bad ways. They interpret uh, good laws and strike them down because of the charter and stuff. And I think, well, you know, there's a time for complaining about it. And now is the time because if they are appointing two new people, if uh, there was a big lobby of people out there saying, we're, we're unhappy with this secret appointment process. We think that it should be public. There should at least be confirmation hearings or maybe, maybe input from the provinces or, or elections maybe even. Um, but see, that's, this is my big beef with the Charter is that because it is so wishy-washy and, and has so many exceptions to its own rules, basically what that does is create a country of men and not of laws, basically, and those men become the judges who... who who appear to be making law because they are taking a law that al that's already in existence and applying it to, to existing situations and legislation. That's why I think the work has to, I think we have to abolish the charter entirely and go back to the common law principles that we had before that, or we have to amend that charter so that there are no clauses to override the fundamental freedoms, and then make that the test against which judges have to constantly, you know, weigh Bob, let me, legislation. Ask, let me ask you this then. If we go back to the person's case that, that Jeff alluded to earlier, where it went to the highest court in the land under, under the unwritten constitution, then housed or not housed because it doesn't exist in Great Britain, we went to the highest court of the land in Canada and it said women are not persons. Under this document... Yeah, right up until 1926. Under this document, that would not have been said. It, would it, so is there but not? it was taken care of long before this document, and, and, and yes, that was a failure of an official recognition. It was less that women weren't persons than, than women weren't allowed to own certain types of property, and, and they couldn't vote because it was all tied to property. Yes. And, and so... Yeah, they weren't non-persons in the modern political sense. Right. Yeah. So, you know, who could own property was legally the person who had the right to vote and to, who paid taxes and, and that kind of thing. Um, but as far as the charter itself goes, I'm, I'm kind of losing. What was the question you actually well, focused on? Well, you said earlier that, that we'd been better off to just abolish this, and I was just curious to know whether you saw any connection. You know, without it, we were back. We could conceivably, within Canada, if we abolished it and kept it within Canada, then we might still have uh, that judgment in the person's case in Canada might have stood. I, 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 that's a little confusing here. I guess... I should back up and say, are you suggesting we should abolish it and, and have the Brits be the, the court of last last? No, appeal? not necessarily. Okay, so we keep it here then? We could keep it here, but, but at least operate on the principles and the laws that we had set, set down up till then. You know, e even if you went by the Charter and even by the basic freedoms that we had before that, a lot of the laws we have in this country are, are illegitimate, and yet we still have them. Like, for example? Uh, um, any law that, that, that sens is censorship to adults. Any law, drug laws for, for a large part. I mean, how are uh, they illegitimate? Well, if we do have those fundamental freedoms as set out in the first section of the Charter. No, it says right here, though everyone has the right to life, liberty, mm -hmm. and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. Yes. Whether we like it or not, justice in this country proscribes the use of recreational drugs, for example. That in Canada, that's a principle of fundamental justice. So how is how is well, that? How no, is that no, no, no. That's that, that's a legal that's a legal law. It's not a principle of fundamental justice. Um, that's a philosophic comp concept, and and whether the law pervert, perverts it or not is another issue. Um, 
you don't have a right as an individual to go into anyone else's home and tell them what they can read or, or watch on TV or what they can smoke or what, what drugs they can take. You just don't have that right. And in a government that operates on principles of fundamental justice, that government requires its authority and power from the rights of its citizens. And if that's a right that I as a citizen do not have, the government cannot have that right. That is one of the fundamental principles of justice. But that's not the fundamental principle of justice on which that charter operates. It, well, it operates sure on buy, I'm not sure I buy that, because the government does have, we grant the government the right, for example, to send an armed individual into your home if you're, you know, if you're a fleeing felon, for example. Yes. I don't have the right to but, go, but, I don't have the right to take a gun and chase you into your home if you're a fleeing, a fleeing felon. Uh, I would say you do. Well, if I'm, you, under if, our laws, if I you don't. Were, if you had your rights violated, you would still be held accountable, and so would a police officer. I mean, even if a police officer comes no, in, you're, your saying, own, you've got to file no, you're a report. saying the way you think it should be, but the way it is today, I could not do that. Mm -hmm. I can't do that. I can't go hot pursuit of somebody with a gun in my hand, no matter what they've done. You I can't, can't even do defend that. yourself with, with a gun in your hand. You can't even defend yourself with a knife legally, technically. Yeah. I mean, but what is what are you talking about? That doesn't that doesn't dis disprove my principle. It just means we have got another stupid law. Well, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of people out there who would want to see people running after each other carrying guns. Well, obviously not. That's why we have governments that are supposed to operate on but, fundamental principles the, of justice, so that government has, we don't become the vigilantes. government has rights that we don't have. You said a moment or two ago. It has an authority that we all possess, and we agree that that authority is exercised by this instrument. Of justice. You know, which so is lawyers government. sitting here saying nothing. We're talking about the law. <laughs> sitting here doing nothing. Oh, well, see, he's, he's all concerned with with the law, <laughs> whereas like I'm more concerned with, with, with philosophy and principles <laughs> behind the law, which I think is what law is all about. It's just that when you look at a law, every law is based on a principle or a philosophy, but not necessarily the same one. I guess one of the things that uh, I recall by way of history as to how we ended up with the charter was that I believe Diefenbaker had passed a Bill of Rights back in the early yes. 60s, mm -hmm. and what happened was that the Supreme Court of Canada virtually uniformly did not follow it or found that uh, it didn't apply. Um, and the sense was that, uh, now the courts in those days were, were more conservative than they are now, but it was as a result of these various cases where um, where uh, the Bill of Rights was found not to not to apply to all kinds of legislation that they decided, okay, we got to oomph this up, we got to make it a charter, so uh, part of the Constitution, so it's up higher than the rest of them. But one of the things uh, that, that occurred to me, you mentioned going back to the old system, and our common law system of, of law certainly still exists, but I remember reading once about somebody saying that the common law is basically the judges are supposed to look at and say, what have we always done? And they say, whatever we've always done, we should keep on doing it. Under the common law, there should be no evolution, ideally. If a judge is doing his job right, he should simply look back as far as he has to go to find the last time the situation came up. And whatever we did then, that's what we're supposed to keep on doing. And that was how they decided the, the person's cases. They said, well, in the past, women have never been persons. So under the common law, why should they be now? Um, that's a problem, I think. As, as the world changes, uh, you have to look at a lot more than just what we've done in the past to decide what we should do in the future. Well, I think what happened then was they applied a principle that wasn't applied to men at one time in, in history as well. And they said, well, gee, you know, if we're going to have common law, we better apply it across the board. So what, what they do is they keep working with that principle and applying it to areas where, where it hasn't been applied. Got to remember, we we didn't come from a totally free anarchistic society and then suddenly develop governments. We came from generally overgoverned societies that were had, you know, historically had had absolute monarchies or dictators and tyrants. All kinds of people have been ruling the world. So that the evolution uh, towards individual rights and the concept of contract and and property, which by the way is a key thing missing in our Charter of Rights and Freedom, is the right to to own, use, and dispose of property. 
um, became the principles upon which those changes were made. Um, so, so yeah, I'm not saying that by common law that we, what that means is we've got to do what we've always been doing. No, common law is that body of principles. And often we find it's not in, it doesn't exist in this certain area of law, and then we've got to change that. Or some people say that judges don't uh, make law, they discover the law. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I would go with that. I want to back up a little bit here, and I'm going to ask a very loaded question, and I don't mean it to be provocative, although it, I suppose it is. In an absolute sense, why do we need lawyers involved in the law? I mean, let me be a little more specific. Lawyers that fulfill the role that lawyers do today, which seems to be to take up the case of an, of an aggrieved individual or otherwise, or an accused individual, and to, to, in many ways, and I know this isn't strictly the case, in many ways become that individual before the law. How did we get there? I mean, what do we need that for? And we've talked before about the incredible expense today of getting involved in any kind of legal proceeding. The expense is not to go to court. The expense is for the lawyer, and the other guy's got a lawyer, and there's lawyers everywhere, and there's lawyers doing this and that and the other thing. Do, do, we, well, do we really need that? I mean... No, no, we don't. I'd say there's two reasons why we have lawyers. The first is that somebody discovered uh, hundreds or thousands of years ago that somebody else was a slightly better talker than they were, so they decide... Would you mind going up and talking for me because you seem more persuasive? That's the first part of why we need lawyers. But the second part is that we've created a system that's so complicated that nobody knows how to work it except people who's, who work in it all the time. And uh, they have the keys to the, to the vault, if you like. They're the people who can access the system. And that's, that's a very bad thing, I think. I think it's totally inappropriate that you should have to go to somebody just because they have the knowledge that will allow you to go and talk to a judge. To me, you should be able to schedule an appointment and go in and talk to the judge. And all the formality, all the forms, uh, and I've talked lots of times about this, that the, the extraordinary formality we have now dictates even how thick the paper has to be uh, that you use when you're filing. The color of the folders have all to this, be. Oh, oh yeah, man. it's just ridiculous. And none of those things, in my, I would suggest, uh, advance the cause of justice, and they all prevent people from be, being able to access it. But a big reason we need lawyers right now is because they know what color your file has to be when you go before a judge. Well, instead of worrying about repatriating constitutions and who's going to be the next Supreme Court justice, why, why aren't we focusing on that? I mean, the lawyers obviously aren't going to do it, but are, we, are the rest of us, Bob, are we so intimidated by the Jeffs of the world that we won't well, make that an issue? There's a catch-22 here, isn't there? Lawyers make the law, basically, and they interpret the law along with all the judges. They're all part of that court, courtroom process. And uh, if a judge is influenced by a lawyer who wins his case, whether he's on one side or the other, that judge has, or rather that lawyer, has made a great impact mm -hmm. on, on what a judge rules and what becomes a precedent or common law. Um, I, I think the issue, again, comes back to the number of laws we have. We have too many laws, too many regulations, too many ways of prescribing behavior that are not necessary. Um, and we don't operate our society more on fundamental principles. I think, uh, you know, except in capital crimes, which are strictly, you know, violence, theft, of that nature, I think any other crime should be, be be sort of dealt with as Jeff suggests. You know, more on a much, you know, almost like what they do on some of the TV shows, mm. Judge Judy and that kind of thing. Get in there, get it over with quick. As a matter of fact, yeah, I think a lot to be that's a that. way of making money on the whole situation too for for everybody. 
What I would suggest in that case is that if you're somebody who can afford a top drawer lawyer, they're going to come in and their paper is all going to be nice and, and look good and everything, and that will give them a, a tactical advantage, but that's all. Uh, but at least you can get into court as a regular person, whereas right now, unless you know how to do all that fancy paperwork, you're never going to get to see a judge to get your problem well, fixed. If you, if and you, paralegals should be allowed to do a lot more. If you watch, as I do, Ally McBeal, and I don't pretend that it's that it's, that it's you know, accurate portrayal of, of what happens in a courtroom, but certainly it's a, it's a very inventive program in terms of the manipulation of information, and they have these these lawyers that go into these courtrooms, and some of them are very clever lawyers, and that's part of the, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the show, but there's a couple of them that are really very, very sharp lawyers. And they go into the, they, they go into the courtroom, and they do all of these tricks, and all of these, uh, you know, they play with the language, and they use the la and they do all of these things. O.J. Simpson. It's endlessly, yeah, endlessly <laughs> fascinating to watch. It makes, it's wonderfully entertaining, but you sit there thinking, what's this got to do with the justice of a case? Right. But then didn't you once tell me, Jeff, that if you want justice, you don't go to court? Well, I, I would certainly say that you don't... Uh, how, how did I put it? Say, I apologize for my head cold this morning. I'm a little clouded, but... Uh, but Lawyers never talk about justice. Justice isn't something that's relevant in the legal system uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's a sad commentary. We have to pause for just a second. We're going to come back and take some calls on Left, Right, and Center. Left, Right, and Center with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlimmer. Got some folks who have been waiting, and Gord's up. Hi, Gord. Hi, how are you doing today, sir? Great, thank you. Okay, three points, and I'll hang up there. Yeah. Knowing how this discussion you're having now could relate to this discussion you had an hour before about uh, debating the good society, I think that would apply here. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and also, secondly, I think lots of times the good intentions are lost in politics. Yes. And thirdly, Mr. Chapman, you made me go to the dictionary again. Mm-hmm. Ameliorate, to make her... Ameliorate. Yes, make her become better. Yes. Are you educational, Jim? <laughs> well, I'm glad. You know, Gord, that's the nice... And I mean this sincerely. That's the nicest thing anybody said to me in a very long time. If I can have that effect on even one person in one word, then what I do has some little meaning here. Thank well, you. No problem. I hope I, with all that legal talk, I leave you with a little yuck yuck, bring you down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Okay, it, care, it, It's funny if you drive up in the Ottawa area, and I was there, and I saw the word ameliorate on a whole bunch of signs wherever there's construction because <laughs> they put them in English and French, mm -hmm. and that's where that word came from. Mm -hmm. It means to fix up, and they're mm -hmm. fixing up the roads. Yep. So. Well, people sometimes give me a hard time for using words like that, and uh, my response always is I don't, I never use them unnecessarily, but I think there are some times when there's an appropriate word, and I'm not going to, I don't, I'm going to play down to an audience. I don't think that's appropriate. Well, it's kind of fun, too. I well, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's also it, in the Constitution. You no, can't change fine, yeah. it when you read but, it. <laughs> yeah, but I do it, too. If I'm reading something, I don't know a word, I go look it up, and I'm glad to hear that, Gord. I know other people do that, too, mm -hmm. so that makes me feel good. Uh, John's up next. Hi, John. Uh, Jim, you must be Harvey S.B. or something like that because you were mentioned about the mystery surrounding the law mm -hmm. and the necessity for them. Mm -hmm. I have a suggestion. Possibly the laws are mysteriously constructed so that we require the needs of lawyers to interpret them. Well, the lawyers have certainly constructed it that way, haven't they? <laughs> uh, I said about 30 years ago when I was involved in labor law, as far as legislation and laws was concerned, it was in the free press, it was interested in the comments, but anyways, and I made, I put it like this, any law legislation which is so written as not to be commonly understood by the common people mm -hmm. must by its very enactment be disadvantageous to those who who are subject to his uh, justice. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't Therefore, agree with you more. let the law be common made by common choice, mm -hmm. then, will it w then will it have weight and truth. Yeah. Now, as a matter of humor for your guests, one being a lawyer, I'm given to understand, mm -hmm. is, is by Fred Allen. And he says, I learned the law so well, the day I graduated, I sued the college and won the case and got my tuition back. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thanks, John. Bye-bye now. Jerry's up. Hi, Jerry. Jerry? Well, we've lost Jerry. Um, Gee, I couldn't you know, agree with John Moore today. Well, he, I th <laughs> but I think he said a few things I meant to say. <laughs> but I think all of us look at it, and there's this issue of so-called legal language, and there's been a great movement of the last few years, although I don't know how much of it is still there. But uh, I can remember if you went to the bank to get a mortgage, for example, you got four pages of incomprehensible jargon. Today, you get two pages of modestly comprehensible jargon. And there was a movement a few years ago to remove a lot of that boilerplate, to make things more straightforward. Um, it seems to me it's kind of a shame that we didn't extend that to the statutes themselves. I mean, I've had the opportunity on occasion to, to look at law books. And I'm not, a, I'm not the smartest guy on the, on, the, on the pickup truck, but I'm not the dumbest one either. And I sit there and look at some of that stuff. And, and not because of the word. I understand the words, but it's still incomprehensible. Oh, yeah, and that's just if what's on the page. Often the, refer, the law has to be interpreted by looking to a bunch of other pages that they don't tell you about, mm -hmm. too. It's ridiculously complicated, and, and I agree with, with John that uh, when you make laws that are too complicated for people to understand, they can't be just, they can't be fair. Uh, the worst scenario, or one of the worst things that I see in my business from time to time is people who break laws who didn't know there were laws, mm -hmm. that, that didn't know they were breaking a law, and of course that's when we bring in the maxim, ignorance, ignorance of the law is no defense. Mm -hmm. uh, and it certainly happens, and, uh, and that's bad. But uh, yeah, no, laws could be, could, I think, could be way simpler than they are. Now, uh, I know the reason they're complicated is because the theory of government is that you have to anticipate every contingency and say, this is what's supposed to happen if this unlikely contingency happens, mm -hmm. and they try and and micromanage everything and anticipate everything. And of course, nowadays governments don't work just on statutes. They also work on a ton of regulations under the statutes and there are a ton of policies under the regulations, all of which go to figuring out what you're supposed to do. Uh, having said that though, I think that uh, you still have lots of situations where because you've micromanaged it so much, you end up with unanticipated situations where the law doesn't fit very well and mm -hmm. you end up with an unjust result. And I think that if they didn't micromanage it so much and came back to saying, let's rely on sort of common sense and goodwill uh, and, and a broad sort of a belief that things should be fair, uh, we'd have a much better system and a more comprehensible system for the average person. It's hard to argue that it would be any worse than it is today. The, argu yeah. the argument is often made, well, we can't trust common sense. That's why we have to have it uh, micromanaged. But we've, we've got to the point where <laughs> it's just too much. It's too far. Oh, it is. Let's go back to the phones where Jerry's with us now, I think. Jerry, are you there? Hi. Yes, sir. Hi. I got two quick ones there for you. One is... Uh, a little bit confusing. I, I um, wanted to belong to or join a uh, tanning thing. And I called this one fellow and I, I asked him four or five times, could you please talk a little quieter? My wife was sitting there laughing because I had the phone at arm's length and the whole room could hear him. Mm -hmm. And then I, and he kept putting me on hold. So finally I said, look, sir, stop putting me on hold and please talk quieter. He says, I'm busy. And I started to say, I don't care how busy you are. I'm trying to find out something. He told me a four-letter word, mm -hmm. called me a few names, mm -hmm. slammed the phone in my ear. I called back and asked for the manager. He repeated the statement two or three times, and it turns out he is the manager and the owner. I've called the Better Business Bureau, and he said there's nothing to do about it. Jerry, what's that got to do with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? That's what we're talking about this morning. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought this was your illegal beagles this morning. No, sir. No, sir. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, okay. I, I'm sorry, Jim. I'm, I'm just hitting the missing. No, I, they're, I, I they're apologize. On, they're I, on I tomorrow, Jerry. Tomorrow at 1230, so we'll talk to you then. Um, well, let's pause for a second. We have rants if we have to pause anyway. We'll do that right now. We'll be right back. Uh, Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz with me. Well, I want to uh, maybe come back to the Charter and to the Supreme Court then. Jeff, you're saying that this is, uh, if there's ever a time for Canadians to speak out, it's now when there's uh, two, two appointments in the wind. 
But Canadians are not going to speak out. I mean, Canadians have, A, they have no sense of what the Supreme Court really does, and B, they have no belief that anybody in Ottawa listens to them. Yeah, and it's interesting, and Bob had mentioned earlier about, uh, I can't remember if you were on air or off, about how process is kind of not as interesting as substance. You know, it's the substantive problems that are the interesting ones, and yet procedural uh, changes are often the ones that will make the difference at the end of the day, uh, because there isn't really a burning uh, case sitting out there right now, recently released, that has outraged the public and so on. They're not that concerned about the Supreme Court, and yet these are lifetime appointments. You know, so right now, if uh, if two people are appointed, um, there there could be around for another 30 years or or more. Um, so now is a time when when there could be a major change made, and if people were appointed to the court, for instance, who believed in uh, what's it called strict constructionism, uh, the idea that laws should be interpreted as narrowly as possible and should interfere with the lives of people as narrowly as possible, then that would make a big difference as far as subsequent charter cases. Um, the perception is that the judges who are there right now are more into judicial activism and that they're more willing to look at policy issues and consider the bigger picture and so on, and and a lot of people don't like that. And again. Two people are going to be appointed right now who either go one way or go the other. On what basis do judges who are appointed, can you give us any insight, who believe that they should be activists? On what basis do they, I mean, what do they base that belief that, because ultimately they're saying, I am prepared, and really they are, I am prepared to make the law because I'm wiser than you. I mean, wouldn't it, it would seem to me that any kind of prudent jurist, exercising jurisprudence, would... Uh, would want to go to the strict constructionist thing, wouldn't it? That I do not want to take this any farther than a reasonable understanding of what the people who crafted this law intended. I mean, surely, surely that's the responsible role of a, of a Supreme Court judge. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I have no idea sort of how people come to be, to be judicial activists. Uh, my sense is that uh, they, a couple of things happen. One is that uh, somebody does pass a broad statute, which is, and then say go, they say, go and apply this to all the little statutes. So that gives them the mandate right off the bat to get their, get their hooks into the small statute. And they are supposed to consider this particular little section that deals with a particular definition in the context of the charter and these broad principles and stuff. So that says to them, well, you're not just looking at that tiny little section anymore. Now you are looking at the big picture. And to look at the big picture, you've got to figure out what kind of world am I living in? How does this thing apply to people and so on. And a lot of judges say they really hate that because they feel very ill-equipped to make um, assessments of what society is like. For one thing, judges are very insulated. They're, by and large, they, they, don't, they don't get out a lot. Well, <laughs> shouldn't they, if they are supposedly the best and brightest among us, shouldn't they recognize that? I mean, if you didn't feel you could do the job, why don't you get the hell off the bench? Well, it's not that they feel anybody else can do any better, I think. Um, but again, judges are not supposed to go out and be getting drunk in bars and stuff. Their, their life is very constrained. They're not allowed to engage in public discourse. They're not allowed to go out and gather information or evidence for cases. Say, for instance, uh, they're deciding a case on gay rights. Uh, they have no access to statistics. They have no access to uh, information gatherers except what the lawyers happen to give to them. Now, sometimes they'll ask a lawyer, can you give me statistics on blah, 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 and the lawyer may or may not give it to him, but ultimately it's up to the lawyer. Are you suggesting that the judge couldn't on his or her own go and get that information? That's right. You're not supposed to consider anything that's not before you that, that hasn't been introduced by one side or the other. And that was and the explanation of what happened in British Columbia with that kitty porn case, wasn't it? I don't know. Um, that's, now, that's what I, I understood, that the problem was that it wasn't the context of the societal context of the alleged crime, that the judge's problem was that what had been presented to him 
did not make the Crown's case. Well, that could well be. And, and again, the problem with that then is that if the, if the right evidence isn't put before the judge or if all the relevant evidence doesn't get before the judge in the first place, you can't go back and put it in on the appeals either. You're stuck with what went in at the first instance. Um, and, and some of these artificial things, you see why it's, why it's that way. The reason it's that way is because each side wants to know the judge isn't going to go off and, and find a bunch of other stuff somewhere that may or may not be relevant or may or may not be um, credible and make a decision based on that. They're only supposed to decide based on what the two parties bring to the table. what's the difference? Tables. If you don't trust the judge to do that, why would you trust the judge to make the right judgment on what you bring to the table? Uh, well, because theoretically they're, they're not supposed to be information gatherers, they're supposed to be deciders. Now, in, in Europe, it's different. In Europe, the judges do go out and gather information. The, the Princess Di thing, for instance, they appoint a judge and he goes out and does all kinds of investigations and stuff. But in our system, judges aren't supposed to do that. Now, one thing that strikes me about our system, and, and, and broadly, as I say, I think that the Charter has, has done a lot of good things, but the other thing about the Supreme Court of Canada is that the people there are really, really smart people. Like, they are the best and brightest of the legal system. Mm -hmm. We had Ian Binney appointed last year, who was the senior litigation lawyer at McCarthy Tetro, the biggest law firm in Canada. Uh, you know, we've got uh, Justice uh, Arbour, who's just been appointed, who was the uh, war crimes commissioner in Kosovo. Mm -hmm. Like they, sometimes I wonder why our system is one where we do get, although the, although it's purely a political process, the uh, Kretchen could appoint his best buddy and nobody could stop him. He doesn't. You know, he goes out and says to the belief committee, okay, who are the smartest people out there? And, and they take the job. Well, maybe that's one small thing we have to give him some credit for. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Always a pleasure. Thank Sorry I didn't get a last word there, Bob, but we're out of time. That's okay. Uh, tomorrow's program. What are we doing tomorrow? Come on, Jim, get organized. Kathleen gives me all this wonderful information and I can't find it. Here it is. Jarma Hood from the Non-Smokers Rights Association will be in tomorrow to take issue with what John Lewick said today. My buddy Jody Duran, the farmer outstanding in his field, is going to be in to talk about the Zurich Bean Festival coming up. Pat O'Brien will join us to explain this uh, supposed rip-off of veterans' pensions. The government says there's no such thing. We'll see if we can find out. We've got some open phones about smoking following up what we did today. Some open phones about other things and treasures in the attic as well with Paul and Tiffany Gardner. That's all coming up on tomorrow's program. Please stay tuned today for Bud Polehill on Ask the Experts. This is Jim uh, for uh, Jeff and Bob and Ryan and Kathleen and Sarah and Christina. Take care of each other. Mind how you go and we'll see you soon.